The old lady put her bloody saw down so she could rest. She lit a cigarette and asked which podcast I like best. Well, my favorite podcast is Sometimes Dead is Better. Dead is Better. Sometimes Dead is Better. Hello and welcome to Sometimes Dead is Better. And it's me, Kristen. And me, Chris. And we are a horror movie podcast. And then I try to tie a true crime into whatever horror movie we're doing. You don't just try. You've succeeded. <laughs> so far. We'll see. <laughs> and you were, we just failed one time. And <laughs> I'm still, yeah, I'm still waiting to get stumped. Okay, so this week we have an exciting uh, episode. Do you want to tell us what movie we're doing? We are doing the 2000 movie, American Psycho. Why are we doing this? <laughs> <laughs> well, because I just recently finished the book. Okay, well, I wanted to talk to you about that because I thought going into this that you had read the book years ago at the same time that a lot of the people our age read it. No. And specifically, I remember talking with Amy mm-hmm. and Brian, right. your husband. Right. right. <laughs> I guess it was obviously at Barnes & Noble. And we were like, I think Amy was like highlighting passages. Was she really? Yes. And... uh talking to Brian about it, and I was kind of listening. We were all reading at the same time. We were oh, all in college. Well, see, like, I was only like 19, 20 at that time. Okay, I was 21, 22. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny, because I just thought you were, uh, I, I just assumed you read it back then. So no, that kinda, was like kind of before I really wanted to, I was like into horror stuff, or I, I would not have wanted to read, read that back then. It's probably wise. Yes. So I'm really curious as to your um, take having read it the first time, because you have seen the movie before, Yes. Having read the book. And um, for those of you that have only seen the movie, I guess we should maybe preface this by saying that the novel is one of the, I would have guessed, more infamous books the last you know, 20, 30 years. Yes. That's probably one of the banned books from certain places, I'm sure. Yeah. It was hard to get published. Simon and Schulster were supposed to publish it, and then they read it and were like, no. Right. And they dropped it. It's um, written by Brett Easton Ellis, who back then was most known for like Lesson Zero, he was um, part of the literary Brat Pack, as they called it. He was um, very young. Very young. These sort of 80s authors that, you know, if you believe the legends, were just all about, you know, cocaine, hookers, just living that kind of life, along with um, that Jay McHillary. I can't ever say his name, but um, right, Bright right. Lights, Big City guy. Um, and now he's kind of known as like a, I think I read someone online called him a professional troll, <laughs> which is <laughs> kind of accurate. He's kind of most known these days. He still writes, but he's... Very well known for his sort of hot takes and oh, okay. um, sort of being kind of a, um, a professional contrarian might be a better term for him. He's mm. still pretty controversial. Lots of people don't like him. <laughs> um, but you said that he was 26 when he wrote this, yeah. which is a baby. I've read it exactly one time, and that was easily 20 years ago. And it is still the most horrific, gruesome, over-the-top, violent, crazy book I've ever read. Yeah. Sounds like that's about right. And the movie is an over-the-top, crazy, violent movie, but it is not. It is nothing a quarter like the book. Of what the book no. is. No, no, no. So, you know, listeners, I think you need <laughs> to have that frame of reference so that you know um, why it's kind of stunning to me that Kristen is just now uh, reading this. Well, the reason I I'd never read it before, and then when Brian and I did the Game of Thrones episode, I talked about medieval torture stuff. And so one of them was 
that they did on Game of Thrones that they also used in real life was when, when they would starve the rat and then put the rat up to the, someone's stomach. And he said, oh, yeah, I know. I know about that kind of stuff. I read American Psycho. That piqued my interest. And I was like, what? What do you mean? I, I'm going to go and read that now. Who said I, that? Brian. <laughs> I don't know why Brian didn't say, no, don't read it. But he just let me read it. He also still owns the copy. This is the his copy. Yeah. And... I can't imagine him ever reading this, or if any he did. Are there any highlighted passages? There in are not. Okay, because that would be Amy's highlight. <laughs> and then, you know, I asked him, I was like, how did you read this? And he was like, well, it was different back then. It was when I was younger, I, could, I read stuff like that. Now I don't want to. I decided to pick it up and read it. I read it um, on my trip to Oregon with my two kids. Each one of them lost a tooth while we were there, which is kind of odd. And so when I was getting on the plane, my mom handed me an envelope with their teeth in it. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, so I stuck it in my backpack. And then later I realized that I was very lucky to get through security with human teeth right. and a tattered old copy of American Psycho. <laughs> I read it on the plane, too. I can't believe I just had that out. Like, I hadn't gotten to where it gets really crazy yet. If I had known, I probably wouldn't have been reading that in public with my children. But I'm curious what... Um place that book and has nowadays like in the sort of like the people know i guess people still know about the movie but there's a while where it's still in the, in the conversation you know a lot right um, maybe when the movie was being made that may be why um, well i mean i read a couple articles about it's like 25th anniversary um and when it came out people trashed it people hated it the book yes hmm. i mean I'm sure there were some people who who liked it but um most of them called it salacious and you know pornography and all that kind of stuff. Uh, 25 years later, there's been a lot of articles about it, a lot of people defending it. There was one article that I read that was on The Guardian by um, Irvine Welsh, mm. and he was, he says it's a modern classic. There's also a musical about this recently. Do you remember that? It was on Broadway? Psycho? Yeah. No. Or it was a play, maybe? I might have a play. Matt Smith from Doctor Who starred in it. I don't know much about it, but... So, I mean, it's it's still continuing. This was like in 2013 or 14, you know? So, it's still out there. I had no idea. Oh, so, but I wanted to say what, what Irvine said about it. One of the quotes that he says in this article, and we'll put a link on it in our show notes, is um, American Psycho holds a hyper-real satirical mirror up to our faces, and the uncomfortable shock of recognition it produces is that twisted reflection of ourselves and the world we live in. It's it's us. We just don't want to admit it. Okay. This I, is okay. This is what he said. This is what a lot of the defenders were saying. Right, yeah. You know, but there's some of that in there. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I just you know, I, we can we'll talk about it more when we get into the movie. You we, know, we haven't we, even done our what have we, we watching. Have, we still have our what have we have to drink. I mean, <laughs> this is gonna be a big one too. <laughs> right. But I I have a I have thoughts on Mr. Okay. Walsh's comments there. Yes. Okay. So first. Uh, 10 minutes in what have you been well, watching what have you been watching <laughs> <laughs> what you been watching Chris um, so uh, I'm excited to announce uh, if you've watched, listened to our Midsummer episode um, you'll be happy to learn that I went and saw the director's cut um, which premiered last weekend in select cities including for some reason Birmingham Alabama that's great I don't know it was just a weekend or two um, so what happened was the director of Midsummer, um, and spoiler alert I'm going to be talking about Midsummer for like Four minutes. <laughs> so if you haven't listened to the episode or haven't seen that movie, you can just uh, fast forward. Check the timestamps on the description. Yes. So the director of Midsommar, Ari Oster, um, went to some film festival and 
premiered like this director's cut they did which has like I think 18 more minutes it's already a long movie wow so now it's 18 minutes longer right. so it's easily comfortable three hour movie um, and it got a good response at this film festival so that company that amazing A24 or whatever it is um, released it that's not the best movie to you. they just don't yeah, care they, I know <laughs> So they released it in select cities, and me and Melissa went, uh, and it's really freaking good. It, 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 the amazing, amazing thing is it doesn't really, I mean, it's such a leisurely long movie anyway. Mm-hmm. The extra 18 minutes doesn't necessarily feel, make it feel that much longer. Um, I guess once you know you're kind of in for a, a haul. But the stuff they added, it's, it's all good. It, it does explain some of the um, questions we had in our, in our own podcast. Uh, for instance, a minor spoiler, you know, we had questions about... What was the deal with in the final scene where um, the British girl is cartwheeled into the right. um, the burning? Yes, with the, the Polaroid pictures. Right. Okay, so there's not okay. Polaroids. Okay, what are they? There's a deleted scene or a new scene uh, where it takes place at night. And I mean, it's a really cool scene, so I hate to kind of give it away, but it involves a ritual where they drown someone, okay? And how they drown someone is they. Uh, cover them with uh, chains and locks and weird heavy things so when they throw them in the river or whatever it is they'll just sink so they drowned her that's what's all over is this oh locks and weird like metal kind of just heavy uh, they look like polaroids i don't yeah when you know what they are they're obviously not polaroids really just these weird metal things so that's just to show that they drowned her they oh my that's god they that, that, that's, that's like why that. she's so wet looking yes. and, and so it's like, oh, okay. And there's a you know, so there's that. That's so now I have to think what does that represent? Water? Yeah, I didn't uh, okay. that, that probably blows her whole theory out of the water. Um, so there's things like that. There's um there's more not exposition, but just dialogue that explains more about the customs and like we had a question like do people always are they always just throw themselves on that rock? Like, you know, yes, they are. You know, it's oh, not just okay. every ninety years, like there's a 90 year thing, but then there's like the everyday crazy shit. Okay, they well, there's the yearly thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, people are always dying. Okay. Uh, and specifically, they're always throwing themselves all that rock. That's not usual. The unusual thing is a 90 year right. bear burning. Right. <laughs> um, so, and there's a lot more also uh, for a good or bad about the relationship. And it helps you see even more why she makes the decision at the end as far as uh, Christian goes because okay. he is even more of an ass. Okay. Was there anything else that you noticed just not in the director's cut, just other things that... Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, I mean, I mean, to be fair, there's some things I don't know if I just missed or if they were just new additions because oh, a lot of the right, scenes are right, like... Right. It's not like new scenes. There's things like inserted into mm-hmm. existing scenes. But a lot of the drawings around the cabins and things are clearly foreshadowing things. Uh, there's a lot of bear imagery all throughout the movie. There's a bear in a freaking apartment. Yeah, I, I noticed that. <laughs> I didn't notice that. Yeah. Um, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a bear in a freaking apartment. Yeah. Well, I mean, like a cartoon bear. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, one thing I was terribly excited. So there's a scene where um, the Swedish friend's uh, sister, you know, she is trying to like uh, do a love spell on Christian. Right. Right. So she trims one of her hairs and puts it in the oh so you actually see it no oh. but what you notice is that the drink he's drinking is red where everyone else's is like clear it's your menstrual blood oh my gosh which is also shown in that painting that, or that mural you see at the beginning of the movie yeah there's a lot of shit like that not explained if you just kind of 
you know, pay a little bit of attention. There's a great, and I'll, this is the last thing I'll say about it. <laughs> There's a great thing you can YouTube. Uh, you can just do what I do and furiously YouTube midsummer <laughs> clues at one in the morning. Um, but Ari Oster did some sort of interview when he did the director's cut, and he actually openly talks about a lot of the sort of, you know, things to look for and um, Easter eggs without giving away too much. Um, and also just, he's a really funny person. and he Really? That's great. Uh, he's hilarious, and he's, he's very self-defacing about his own work, while at the same time, you know, acknowledging that he's a, a genius. I love him. <laughs> good, good. Um, so Midsummer's director's cut. What have you been watching? <laughs> Was that supposed to be Irish? Yeah. Oh. Uh, I watched a movie on Netflix that I'd wanted to see. It's a movie called Christine. Now, not, not. Got so excited. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> not the car one. The, you mean the one I have on 4K in my living room? No, I'm sorry. I actually know what you're talking about. I've been okay. wanting to watch it too. I don't know what it's about though, other than it's gotten like really good reviews. It's from 2016, and I'd want to see it because you know I know a lot of fucked up shit, and so I'd heard this. It's a true story about this reporter named Christine Chubbuck who um, worked at a news station in the 70s. And she she had like some some mental uh, issues, depression, and I don't know if maybe she was bipolar, but she was really into her job. She wanted to do a really good job. Oh, is this the the anchor that goes? Yes. <gasps> oh, wow. I didn't know that was a movie. Yes. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> so they, uh, the, the woman who plays Christine, is her name is Rebecca Hall, who's one of my favorite actresses. Did you ever happen to see the miniseries on HBO called Parade's End? No, but you, you told me about it. Okay, I love it. Rebecca Hall is amazing on that. And, of course, it's got my guy, Benedict Cumberbatch. Well, what else is she in? I mean... Um, she's in The Town. She's in The Prestige. She kind of shows up in those roles. She's always great. And in this, she's awesome. I mean, like, you just she, she seems like that person. She's very, like, buttoned up. Uh, she lives with her mom... And she's the one that's like very strict about going to bed on time, not smoking pot, not having boys over. It's very interesting, the dynamic between them. And then she goes to work and she kind of has a crush on Michael C. Hall. And she has issues with her boss. She has a best friend there. And you know she's trying to do a really good job. And she writes these uh, deep think pieces that she thinks are, or, or she knows they're important. But that's not what they want. This is in the 70s, and so they want... I mean, the guy even says, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, this is what we need. And so she gets really upset about that. He gives her assignment to start following... He gives her police scanners, so she starts trying to get these juicier stories. And even when she gets those, he doesn't like them. I recommend it. It's it's not... It's a, it's a bit of a tough movie, just because just the ending is the big climax part, but the rest of it is really good. Her... Oh. Um, daily life is very interesting. Well, I'm absolutely going to watch it, you know, because I was, I've recently heard about that story anyway on, I don't know how I came across it. I was kind of fascinated. So, Yeah, it's by the same director who did um, Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Remember that movie? It was with uh, Elizabeth Olsen. I don't think I saw that one. Um, that was really great. So I recommend it. So what are we uh, drinking this episode? Okay, so again, we're kind of going with the book and the movie because in the movie you can't really pinpoint they're drinking a lot there so i thought about a nice chardonnay because he gets what he gives his victims or um the women he has over but chardonnay is also gross so but in the book again everything is so much more detailed every drink he has at every dinner they tell you about so he likes j and b on the rocks which is a scotch whiskey and he drinks diet pepsi so we're having j and b scotch 
whiskey with Diet Pepsi. Yay. And he also only drinks Evian, and he'll drink a dry beer every now and then. You know all about Patrick Bateman. The reason I remember the Diet Pepsi or Diet Coke and whiskey thing for American Psycho is because years ago, you and I were at work play mm-hmm. watching a, some mm-hmm. band, mm-hmm. and you were so despondent because you were... Uh, you wanted a whiskey Coke. Yeah. And you said, I can't drink the Coke. I mean, you're, on, you're on some diet or something. Yeah. I said, well, just do a whiskey diet Pepsi like Patrick Bateman. <laughs> and you were so excited. Like, oh, I mean, I've never seen you. It was like a, the, the loss of Raptor learning moment like you mentioned a few weeks ago. <laughs> uh, I, rest, I still remember being so excited. And I was so excited to have taught someone something. I was like, <laughs> it's like when a teacher, you know. I don't know. The kid learns to read or something. It was, it was a great moment. Yes. Yeah, so, so now, one of my favorite drinks is whiskey and Diet Coke. Well, yeah. all because of American Psycho. I would not have <laughs> thought that. So, uh, Kristen picked American Psycho. Um, so, before we got into our, um, what we're watching, what we're drinking, I think I was, we were getting to what her thoughts are on the book generally, having seen the movie before, but not having, having read the book. So, it's bananas. Yes. Like, I really can appreciate the fact of what he's trying to do. I really appreciate that he's trying to put all this detail into just his daily life. And so why wouldn't he have all that same detail in describing his murders? But why are his murders so fucking horrific? And why does Brett Easton Ellis's mind even go to these things? I mean, the things that I have read in that book now are seared into my brain. So the, the thing about the book is, and the movie is... I mean, they're seared in my brain 20 years on. I'm not exaggerating. Like I Yes. Uh, I think it's going to take a while to get some of that stuff out. And I didn't realize it was that bad at first. Because I was like, well, I've read so many true crime books. I've seen so much stuff. And then the stuff that he describes in there, I just don't know how someone can even... Think of it. Think of it. Yeah. The worst things he could possibly think of, he wrote. By the end, I was like, I, I, I do appreciate in the, putting us into this world, too, was very interesting. And um, some of the things were very clever about how all the good-looking white males can't don't know who, who's who. Do you, so, think it, do you think it's funny, the book? No. The movie is. The, I can see the dark humor in the movie. But the book is just so heavy. That's what I was wondering because you know I just don't have a I have a memory of the book in terms of those searing images right. and the the list and the general kind of voice of it. But the movie is you know which to me is quite you know intentionally funny and you know and I think the book is maybe and Brett Easton Ellis today does say stark comedy. I'm not convinced that's what his intention is, but you know who's to say. But I, I think the movie is colored for me what the book probably was. And I don't remember it being that funny like when I read no, it. No, it's it's very heavy. For a while, you know, I think I, I probably read the book probably knowing the movie was coming out. I'm not sure how that happened, but for whatever reason. Yeah, it would have been around. Because I started working at Barnes & Noble yeah. like 2001. I'm sure, yeah. There was probably like an at-the-movies thing at Barnes & Noble. And that was you know, on the end <laughs> cap. And everyone was talking about it. And, and, you know, back then I was very much in my sort of male, you know, if it was five years later, I definitely would have read Fight Club. I never did. Yeah, but, just like Brian certainly watched the movie. was in that that time, too, where he yeah. read stuff like that. Yeah, and then like to me, it seems so foreign, which is why it's. I'm really interested in your take, being not a white male angry person. Um, but for a while, that's like kind of what the thing was. There's that, you know, like you're, I mean, that was just a whole mood. Like, you know, and 
when me and my friend uh, would talk about that book and Patrick Bateman, we would talk about it in ways that like almost like it was like a hero, not in the ways that he killed people, but like just for being, you know, contrary and, right. you know, calling out the system. And, and <laughs> oh, yeah, isn't it cool that, he, you know, even talks about killing people, how funny. And nowadays, like, and maybe it's just the climate, you know, and people either being older or actually just having, you know, seen horrific things the past 20 years, you know, I, I can never begin to imagine that being funny or cool. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. When I read it, it was, to me, very much cool. I'm almost, like, ashamed of that. So I don't know how I would take that book now. But so I was a little nervous even watching the movie. Part of being so obsessed with the book back then, and obsessed is kind of probably the wrong word, but it it did take up a lot of my headspace because it was so powerful. Um, I remember being very disappointed when the movie came out because it just you know, omitted so much. Like, I felt like it wasn't, like, as hardcore as it needed to be. And now all that is, like, removed. Like, all I kind of know now is the movie. Having seen it, like, a handful of times for the past, you know, decade or so, whether it's on Netflix or whatever, and now there's just, like, the movie, and I can completely appreciate that on its, like, own terms. Right. Completely removed from the book. Right. So I don't have that sort of color to it. And I think that's, like, a good thing, because I don't think I would want a filmed version of that book. No. At all. No. Um, I mean, at one point I read and I forgot this, but Oliver Stone was attached to direct that. Oh, fucker. really? Can you imagine what that would be like? Oh, my gosh. Leonardo DiCaprio was going to play Patrick Bateman for Oliver Stone. Right. I remember Leonardo DiCaprio was supposed yeah. to do that. I didn't During realize. his like, post-Titanic need to do something really angry phase. That he, right. was gonna, he did the beach instead, which mm-hmm. was you know interesting but kind of bad. Mm. There's a really interesting story about the production of the movie. Like Patrick Bateman was in it. I mean, Christian Bale. You know, he was the first choice. Christian Bale waited out Leo. He knew he probably would leave. He did. Oliver Stone left. You know, it, it, it took years to get this thing made, and Christian Bale, for whatever reason, really wanted to do it. They took a different approach entirely. Okay. Like they, uh, I think what happened is Mary Heron, who directed this movie, mm-hmm. she's a woman. Right. <laughs> the book was notoriously, you know, criticized as a misogynist trash by some. Yeah. Um, the violence against the women. Right. Brett Easton Ellis would probably be very proud of that, actually. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a very violent book, specifically, mostly 99% against women. And there's a few, maybe there's like maybe a gay guy that's murdered too. And yeah, a the dog. homeless guy, yeah. But generally, yeah, women. Uh, and yes, it's a satire, but still, you know, it's on the page. It's hard to, you know, get around that. And there's people that are going to read that and miss that entirely, right? Right. Um, so the movie... To say it waters down materials, you know, that's how I would have, that's how I would have seen it back then. But being wiser now, I, I realize what they did. They kind of reclaimed the narrative to my mind and just twisted it a little bit to where it was more clearly satirical. Right. Um, more, I don't know if you'd say it's feminist. It kind of is in a way. And it doesn't make Pesher Bateman look good. You know what I mean? Right. Although he does look fantastic. <laughs> yes, he does. He gets a little sweaty. Yeah. Sometimes. So I mean, saw so all this to say, I was very worried kind of about rewatching this again. Like, you know, is this going to be like a sort of movie, like you go back, it's something like when you were a teenager. Right. You know, like, oh, this is kind of embarrassing. Like going back to like, you know, some early Pink Floyd record, which now I've kind of come all the way back around and love this again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's yes. things that you just like when you're a teenager and they don't really translate to adulthood very well. And I thought, well, this will be that. Right. And the book may very well be that. I um, think the book is. Really? The attention to detail that he does. I don't know why I put my hand on the book. It helps me talk about it. The way he can... The book is on the table and we're podcasting <laughs> on, by the way. <laughs> the way he can go from describing these horrific murders to having full chapters 
about Whitney Houston. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. There's something there. You know, I understand the appeal of it. I just don't think they need to have a chapter called Killing Child at Zoo. It's just... supposedly the most notorious chapter, having read some criticism of it today. Yeah. We'll get to the movie at some point. <laughs> well, in the movie, it's much more ambiguous. Is this in his head? Is it not? That, that was, yeah, that was the question I had, because I don't remember that being a big piece of the book. And feel like firmly convinced it's all in his head but i mean well in the of, movie yeah. i think it definitely does much more lean towards that way right in the book i think it's much more ambiguous i had that issue with the book sometimes when i thought it was all in his head those scenes didn't bother me as much everything i, I could like take a breath and just kind of think and be like if this is not if this is all in his head it's still awful to have to read this but maybe it didn't actually happen but then by the time I got to the end, and it was like, oh, they all still could have happened. It all just left a bad taste in my mouth. And, you know, I just, I don't want to read it again. I'm glad I, I'm, I'm kind of glad I read it. So that way I can say, yeah. yeah, I read it. No, thank you. Yeah, well, and I, I may be, you know, speaking out of turn a little bit because I could reread this thing again and think it's a masterpiece. I really, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to give it. I will it- leave it here for you. Kristen here. Thank you so much for listening. We want to invite you to come join our Facebook group. Sometimes groups are better. There are a lot of cool people in there. We talk about the movies Chris and I review, new horror movies coming out, true crime, pop culture. It's really fun. We would also be so grateful if you would go on iTunes and subscribe and rate and review or subscribe on whatever podcasting app you use. It really helps us to be seen by more awesome people like you. And we want to continue to build this great community. Also, follow us on Instagram at Sometimes Dead Podcasts. We'll post pictures of the drinks we're drinking or pictures of the true crimes we're doing. While you're there, follow Gabby Watts, who does our amazing theme song. Follow her band at Gabby Rots, G-A-B-B-I-E-R-O-T-T-S. And remember, sometimes dead is better. So let's, um, okay, so we've left the book behind. I'm so, going to try. Okay. But yeah, so we'll go back to the movie, which came out in 2000. Yeah, so this is a movie, basic, like you say, came out in 2000, based on a book that came out in 91, based on a time in the mid-80s. Right. So my first question is, like, is the movie, I mean, do you think it's dated, like, when you watch it, or? Yes. But not, I mean, not like, in a way that's that awful. It was a little more over the top than I think it would be today. I know a lot of it was supposed to be. Not not Christian Bale. I never really thought of this before, but I feel like it, it plays intentionally... 80s ish. I know it's about the 80s, and I don't necessarily mean that, but like, like even the way that it looks, it has this weird kind of film stock, low grade 80s movie almost. Does that make sense to you? Like, mm-hmm. nothing kind of, it doesn't look like something you all shot 2000 put that way. It clearly wasn't digital. Everything's so blown out. Like, yeah. you know, like there's so much, uh, like that first uh, opening montage with the, um, you know, the making the food and it's everything's just so white and right. it's kind of ugly almost. And it's like a bad, you know, yeah, it does look, so what, what I was thinking yeah. that it looks like, like Hannibal, like they're trying to incorporate this beautiful food in with murder. Right. And it just, it did look cheesy, yeah. but I mean, and then in Hannibal, they are able to, even the opening is similar, stark white. And then, you know, the, 
the wine is what's making the pictures and it's much more classy so i see what they're trying to do it felt like kind of silly yeah i think it's probably intentionally so i feel like it almost looks like something that was on usa like in the 90s or something like it just it looks like that and i wonder but we also have to kind of remember i mean it was it doesn't seem like 2000 was very long ago but it was almost 20 years ago Right, but I think because it's about the '80s, I just I, I think. You think it's, that they were thinking that far? I, I think it's in, yes, yeah, I do. Okay. I think it's intentionally is an intentional look that is slightly off-putting, slightly dated. So, like you were saying, it was directed by a woman, Mary Heron, mm-hmm. who she also directed that TV show, Alias Grace. Did you ever watch that? No, but I saw that. Um, it's really good. Yeah, but I think back then when she did this, I'm curious how she kind of got on board with it. But the only thing she would have really been known for is that there's an indie movie called I Shot Andy Warhol. Right. Um, which I think I've seen. I've certainly heard of it, but that was about it. I've and, heard of it. I haven't seen it. And then, but somehow she got this, which is kind of interesting because again, there was a lot of people attached to this, like right, Oliver, Stone, Oliver Stone, yeah. who back in the early '90s or whenever this was, when it was being talked about, he was like the biggest deal, like. And Leonardo DiCaprio's gonna be on it, and then, but she was always uh, kind of in the running, so it's kind of interesting that they went with her. Yeah, um, I think she did a great job. Yes, but I mean, other than I shot Andy Warhol, she was mostly doing you know TV and music videos, and yeah, it's similar to uh, Mary Lambert. Ooh, yes, which was in '89. Yeah. So I noticed that she co-wrote it with Genevieve Turner, right? who I don't know much about her other than she acted in this movie, and yeah. she's a writer. I'm not sure what else she's done. Um, she has acted in a lot of stuff, but yeah, she was the girl in the second three-way. Right, yeah. Um, but then, then I, a lot of them were also involved in the notorious Betty Page movie. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I haven't either. Gretchen Maul played Betty Page, and so she, Mary Heron directed it, and then a lot of them were in it. Genevieve Turner, for instance, is you know a lesbian, and uh, Mary Mary Heron is uh, you know clearly a probably as feminist leaning as I would I would guess. So for them to take on this material uh, is very interesting to say the least. And so again, what I think they've done is they've simply kind of given this as a, a book about violence against women. They've sort of taken that, reclaimed it, spun it, and sort of you know redirected it like you know like a like a top. <laughs> They, I think they did a great job of taking this material and putting it together yeah. to a really enjoyable movie. So, like, Brett Easton Ellis would have full chapters, 10 pages, about Huey Lewis in the news. And so they decided to take that and make it into a monologue during these murders, which made it so much more interesting. Oh, I kind of forgot that. I forgot that the, they were actual unrelated chapters. Yes. Not, okay. That's... And then a lot of the dialogue is taken from the book, and they kind of put that in throughout the movie. Um, a lot of the end pieces are from the very end of the book too so they didn't need a lot they used it as an inspiration but I really think that they kind of they made it their own Um, so let's you know who is Patrick Bateman who's her character how do we get into that so we have Christian Bale Christian Bale is this one of his best performances do you think I think so he's had so many lately yeah it kind of seems from like um, from that fighter American Hustle I think this is, I still think it's great. Like, even though he plays it over the top, I never think it's, like, hacky or... Yeah. I think he is so hilarious in this movie. I mean, I, I you kind of, it's such a good performance. It's, you kind of lose track of how understated and funny it actually is. But right. his line readings in this, I mean, I can call out 10 line readings any given moment that are just crack me up just thinking about them. You know, just... You know, I'm with you on that one. Or, you know, uh, <laughs> or oh, gosh, at the end, whenever he's like rocking and rolling, <laughs> I'm just a happy camper. Um, he's so good at sort of the kind of 
deadpan, surface level, um, politically correct, non-speak, you know, like, just cool with anti-Semitism, okay? You know? <laughs> yeah, which is interesting because in the book, he's a complete racist. He's very misogynistic. That's not as portrayed in the movie as much. Yeah, I think the idea is it's there, but he, he knows how to sort of speak the language and in a very sort of surface level, you know, he just sort of knows the lingo, kind of like he knows all the songs that Hugh Lewis and the News do. You know? Right. But he knows what he's supposed to say. Yeah, because Cause, yeah, because he, cause he's a obviously a sociopath, right. and so that's what they kind of do is they kind of mimic what everybody else is doing, and they kind of know what to say, even though they don't really feel anything. Uh, and we're introduced to Patrick Bateman slash Christian Bale, who is you know very handsome. Although because he's his character, I just cannot be attracted to him in this movie. No, at, at all. Like, no. even though he's a perfect sculpted form, it's just like looking at a walking statue. It's just yes, not yes, at all sexy to me. Yeah, it's it doesn't just, matter that he's in the shower all wet and soapy. At it's all, still yeah. yeah, that's a very interesting thing. It does look like right. I don't want to get me near that. Which is weird, is because it's Christian Bale. Yeah, and, it's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so do you have a history of like when you first encountered Christian Bale? Because I do. I was trying to think of that, uh, and I, I don't remember. I mean, what, are you going to say Newsies? <laughs> yes, I remember it very well. I've never seen Newsies. So um. So I saw Newsies. He had like a Brooklyn accent, and I fell in love with him. <laughs> and I found a post-it note, and I wrote his name, Christian Bale, and I stuck it into my little secret place where I kept all my secrets. Oh, did you just say Christian Bale and nothing yes. else? <laughs> That was it. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, I guess Empire of the Sun would have been the first, but I would have known like that's Christian Bale. I would he's a know, child. Yeah, he's that kid from. So yeah, probably American Psychos. Uh, I can't think of what else before that I would have seen him in. Right. Because after that he was just Christian Bale, and then Batman. Of course, you know, interestingly, Patrick Bateman is very much a precursor in a way to his Bruce Wayne. If you think about it. Yeah. They're yeah. Kind of related. It's the flip side of that coin. Yeah. Um, I almost wonder if he got Bruce Wayne because of being Patrick <laughs> Bateman. Uh, and Batman. Bateman. That's kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> in the, we have Justin Theroux. Right. Who's and, in this scene. Yeah. He looks all like a baby. But he's got a slick back here, so he looks simultaneously 60 years old. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, how is he so much more attractive now? Like, I don't find him attractive. I mean, I guess that's also... I don't think anybody in this movie is attractive. Is part, no, that's a good part point. That's a good point. Everybody's so pasty. And part of it is, like I said, the way it's filmed. Everything's so blown out. And, yeah, and yeah. And you see everybody's pores. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, and even Jared, Jared Leto. Jared Leto looked like a little boy who was dressed up Thank with, you. in yes. his dad's yeah. clothes. Yes, exactly. And yes. I want... Is that, like, on purpose? I wonder, like... I don't know. Yeah. Because even the way he acts, he acts, like, when he's acting drunk, it's a terrible performance. He's either really bad in this or he's brilliant in it. <laughs> And I, I can't figure it out. Like he's acting like he's more drunk because he wants to seem like. Or I, don't, I can't figure it out because okay. Giroletto. I mean, right around these times, what he was in Wrecking for a Dream. Yeah, he's I a mean, good actor. Yeah, he's annoying, but he's a good actor. <laughs> and, and this is like. And that was another one of my huge crushes, which oh, is Jordan yeah. Catalano. Oh, right, right. That was a huge deal for yeah. me. But his um, Paul Owen or Paul Allen, which is it? Paul, Paul Allen. Yeah, it's. It's it, it's the exact way to put it. It's like a four year old dressed up in his daddy's suspenders, and yes. uh, there's such it's so bizarre to me. Um, and I can only imagine that's like intentional because these people are all just babies. I guess is kind of the point. Well, so another actor I wanted to talk about was so in in it's in the book and he's in the movie is Lewis Carruthers, who's in the movie played by Matt Ross, who is the closeted homosexual. Yeah, he's that guy in uh, Silicon Valley, I think. He's in a lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah, he's very familiar looking. But um, I didn't think about it at the time. Because I had just read the book, I knew Lewis Carruthers was um, 
the closeted gay guy. And then in the movie, he's already, like, playing, like, stereotypical, like, he's, like, very flighty and, like, he's holding his hands. Like, are you okay, Patrick? I mean, it's very, it's offensive, right? Or is it not? Probably, yeah. I don't, I mean. Just, like, when I first showed up, I was like, what are they doing? I get, well, see, this is where it gets into, like, it's so clearly a satire that all that kind of just gets muddy. I mean, I don't. You wonder maybe how many of those guys are closeted yeah, well for one thing I didn't even think, it didn't really register me they, I didn't see it as much as closet as like just open secret gay like of course he's gay like everyone kind of right but maybe yeah I guess when I watched it I kind of forgot that you know Patrick's like surprised by that and played right. that horror music like the movie like I feel like very much having fun with that I don't remember at all how that's presented in the book it's, Brett it's Ellis, similar yeah well Brett Easton Ellis himself is gay He's also an asshole. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's gay. He's, you know, this is why he's such a frustrating figure because he's oh. a contrarian. Mm-hmm. He, uh, you know, he's very misogynistic, not just because he talks about killing women, but just in things he says. Like, you mm. know, women can't be directors. He'll just say things like that and then, like, <laughs> let the Twitter world right. respond. <laughs> Maybe he, he just wants the attention. I think that's very much it. Okay. But he also has very insightful things to say about, you know, just culture and that type of thing. But he's also a gay man who's. I think he's dating like a twenty-year-old. Mm. <laughs> There's just all these things. Uh, they're playing up the the homophobia amongst the guys. So to to, oh, to someone okay. like Patrick Bateman, yeah. it would appear like he's like that, you know, sort of mincing and mm-hmm. uh, you know, for all I know, he's not even really even coming on to him in in his mind. You know, I mean, I, I guess it's probably pretty clear, but <laughs> I mean, but you had this sort of you know unreliable narrator too. So right. Well, so I guess we didn't explain that much about Patrick. So Patrick is. Uh, very superficial person. He likes to work out. He's very specific about what he eats, what he wears, what yeah. he uses on his body. So and you have, yeah, I mean, the opening montage in his apartment is sort of the perfect encapsulation yes, of all think that. about that opening montage uh, 1,700 times in the book. There was a whole chapter about the different electronics he has in his house. Yeah, I mean, that, that the facial routine scene is kind of terrifying in its way. You know, it, you know, it goes have, on. Yeah. Just, I mean, it's exhausting even to think about. Pat, uh, Christian Bale actually did that every day on set. Of course he did. But all that also kind of, it just sets up his control issues. And I think that's great. I think it does a great job of showing how much control he needs. And then that translates into the control he needs over the women or whatever type of murder he's trying to. So, so I don't know if you need to get into the psychology of this, but we talked about a lot of serial killers on this podcast, right? Sure. Um, and so, and, and we're going to be talking about Mindhunter sometime soon, right? So we know that there's a profile for these people. We know there's a profile for serial killers. They they hunt in certain ways, or they have certain people, or we know that Ted Bundy liked um, dark-haired young girls. You know, there are specific victims that serial killers choose, right? Yeah. But with Patrick Bateman, none of that's there. Brittany and Alice is probably way more interested in the metaphor exactly, of, yeah. versus the actual logistics of him being a serial killer. Yeah, but it's also more interesting to me that he's just a psychopath in general. Forget about him killing people. But like it's like on Mindhunter, you know, Anna Torf character, when she's introduced, she was studying psychopathy in mm-hmm. the, was it in Wall Street? <laughs> Oh, and, and powerful people, yeah. And powerful people, and, and that you know, there's that the book of sociopath the next door, and that sort of phenomenon of like so the sociopaths in high spiritual society. I think there must have been some genesis to that, and I think it had a lot to do with not necessarily these people are serial killers or violent or anything like that, but just psychopaths or yeah. sociopaths. Well, and, I mean, I, but this is just like complete insanity. 
Um, I mean, like they're in the book also, like he microwaves a jellyfish and tries to eat it. I mean, it's really like yeah. uh, he says that the ATM is talking to him, which well, comes yeah, that's, into that's, later. Yeah, that's taken to the absurd for sure. But the genesis of it, I think, is is kind of interesting. I would love to know, and I'm sure there's some story out there about what sparked the book. Um, but I think it could be rooted in this, you know, this, which is nowadays a pretty common talking point, which is you know sociopaths or psychopaths walking amongst us. Okay, yes. Yeah, so, so Patrick Babin comes into his office, and what's he doing? He's got his Walkman headphones on, uh, just bouncing in, walking on sunshine, uh, and he, we are introduced to his um, assistant, who's Chloe Seventy, mm-hmm. who I have just watched Zodiac this week. Uh huh. She's playing a very similar character. Chloe Seventy is oddly good at these very demure, yeah, isn't that interesting, char- which is so against type for her, knowing you know that she's. She's close seventy. She's yeah. fabulous by all counts, and yeah. um, but she's actually really good at these kind of demure sort of you know meek roles, which yeah. is weird, you know, that she's so good at that. But she is so good in this movie, and I've um, you know I also get right to my talking point. Her is that she is like the only person in the whole movie that appears to have any curiosity, empathy, or thoughts about anyone else in the movie. You know? Yes, like. She kind of has a crush on Patrick Bateman, I guess, but she also seems genuinely, you know, curious about him and asks about his life, and I think that's why he is so confused by her. Yeah. Because <laughs> everyone else in his orbit are kind of like him a little bit. I mean, not killers, but exactly. Well, the, the way that he can just say out loud, "I like to murder people, and no one hears." Yeah. If I mean, he's even saying it, which right, is another yes, thing. Yes. But we'll just concede that I guess he is for right. purposes of the. <laughs> Or he's drawing pictures of a murdered woman, and everyone is in their own worlds, right. and no one is paying attention to anybody else. Or it's because she herself is not a sociopath, right? And is in tune with maybe the world around her. She would notice him saying that um, had he actually said it to her. Um, but I think that's ultimately why. So I don't know if "confused" is the right word, but just doesn't know what to do with her. Doesn't know what box to put her in. He can't kill her. He can't sleep with her. He can't really demean her the way he wants to. Although right. he says all things to her, you know. Yes. You know, is that what you're gonna wear? Whatever he says, you know. Yes. You're prettier than that. It's very Mad Men in a way. Well, if you think about Mad Men, is supposed to be based in the '60s, the late '60s, yeah. and then in the mid '80s, it's still nothing has gotten better, right. especially at that time with that money and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Do but yeah, to- when you really think about it, she really is like the only heart in this movie. Yeah. I would think, and not in some like over maybe the, way, maybe like the prostitute, yeah, Mabel and Defoe a little bit. <laughs> Why he is so smiley? Why is he so smiley? In I this? just love him. <laughs> <laughs> how did that man become a famous actor? He's so good in this. I know. He did is. you hear the story about how um, he was asked to prepare for this role? No. Okay. Well, not how to prepare for it, but how to play his scenes. So, I read today that Mary Heron told Willem Defoe in every scene he's in with Patrick Bateman, which I guess is pretty much all the scenes he's in. He's told to play each scene three different ways. So she has all these different takes. So one way, um, William Defoe thinks Patrick Bateman is killing his people, or killing Paul Allen specifically. One way, he does not think that at all. And then one way where he is just, I guess, split or something. And so he shot each scene with him three different ways, and then she cut it. No. Yeah, so there's why... You don't quite know what his... That is fascinating. So if you watch it, and I I, I read that after watching it, so I don't quite know how it plays, but there's definitely different... No, I can definitely see that, because there's times whenever he'll say, he'll ask him, like, where he was, and he'll be like, 
inquisitive, like, really? Yeah. Is that where you were? And then some things where he's like, well, then I guess you're good. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's the same lines. Do you want to talk about the business card scene? Yes. Because that's a classic. It, it is. Just the way it's shot, too, and the tension that they're able to build in that. And then you, after the scene, you're like, oh, wait, they were just talking about business cards, right? right? I do love I didn't notice this until um, when I watched it again, but the, they all have the same job title. Like every, oh, I didn't every, notice every, that. What was it? They're all vice president, mergers and acquisitions. Oh, there's that's like, there's amazing. There's 10 of them. That's amazing. And they also spell acquisitions wrong. I don't know if that's supposed to be a typo or just a joke, but uh, they spell it wrong. Uh, but yeah, when... Um, Christian Bale is so freaking funny this, but like when he gets uh, Paul Allen's business card, he can barely touch yes, it, and he yes. sort of falls out his fingers. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's so good. He's like, oh, God. <laughs> that off-white. <laughs> uh, my other favorite, I mean, this, I'm just kind of non-sequitur, but when um, he's in the cleaners, yes. Patrick Bateman, and he runs into his, you know, that, the, the lady that wants to, I don't know, see him on Saturday or something, right. and He's so funny, but like, I don't, I don't know how he thinks to do this, but like, uh, the lady says, Oh, are you free Saturday? And he checks his watch. Right. <laughs> he says, Oh, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> I got laid. Like, I like that information is available on his watch somehow. I mean, right. now, now it would be, I guess. Right. But I, this is a funny moment. Well, there's He's, so many little things where, like, there's a, or the way he plays it so well. He finally asks Jean out, who is Chloe Sevigny, and he says, Where do you want to go? And she said, And so he, she's thinking about it, and he just looks back down at his newspaper. Just like little things like that are so good. And then she says Dorcia, and you can see his lips tense up because he knows he can't get a, a reservation there. Yeah. He's, he's just, he's so good. I want to watch it again now. Yeah, I really like the scenes with the first scene, especially with Linda Foe, where he has a dinner reservation with the Cliff Hoxtable. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's so like transparently bad at lying. Anyway. Well, yeah, and then his, his, his excuse is always I have to return some videotapes. Right, right. I remember when you guys were reading this book at Barnes & Noble, or when the movie came out, I guess, actually, because there was a time when Amy and Brian, they were working in the cafe, and so they, you know, we write things on the chalkboard, and so <laughs> about the gelato, they wrote, don't just look at it, eat it. <laughs> oh, my God. That's terrible. <laughs> And then after that, they weren't allowed to write on the blackboard anymore. Another funny thing, though, about the, um, their office space is that none of them ever at all seem to be doing like, any kind of work, ever. Like, no. they, like Christian Bale just sits in his office and listens to his headphones and makes dinner reservations. And reads his magazines. Right. And does the crossword puzzle yeah. where he and, fills in with bone and meat. Right. And bonest. You can't imagine, like, if you open his briefcase, to be like that scene from The Simpsons where just, like, an apple falls out. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick Bateman is dating Evelyn, who is played by Reese Witherspoon. Who's 12. Yes. <laughs> She's another socialite. Very conceited. Wants to marry Patrick, even though he doesn't seem to care for her. No. And he's sleeping with... Um, Courtney. Courtney, who is the... Closet of gay guys, fiance or wife or something. Yes. And she is just completely, pretty much spaced out on drugs the entire movie, right? Yes, and that's Samantha Mathis. Right, right. So the first murder, and we'll just talk about the murders kind of in order, roughly, chronologically. But sure. the, the first murder on screen, anyway, is this homeless guy. Um, it's the first real act of violence we see, I believe. It's hinted at, you know, there's a scene where Christian Bale is walking by the woman 
Right, uh, right. There's some kind of ominous music playing, but you don't quite know. But he meets this homeless man in the alley, um, and first thing he asks is, you know, why don't you get a job? You know, and this sort of very stereotypical white male angst, conservative. It's not even very funny in the movie. But then there's this very interesting line, which I never really noticed until this week, when he says, there seems to be this tipping point where he's just annoyed by him, like right. he would be the homeless person. But then he kind of looks at him and says, I don't have anything in common with you. And mm-hmm. then he kills him. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be sort of like the weird death sentence to this guy. That's what is deserving to him of being killed. It's like he doesn't have anything in common with them. Less so than he's like just homeless. But what do you th- I mean, do you have a take on that? Because I don't quite know what to do with that. Well, I mean, again, in the book, sorry, it's hard to... There's, there's a lot more to it. Uh, and there's just so much more about the homeless in general. I mean, there's just... It's in every... Almost every scene when they go out, there's a homeless person. They, they, they talk about... It these certain homeless people. I mean, I think it's really just to, again, show the divide of the wealth and his elitism. Um, and maybe a lot of these other rich white guys, they have as much contempt for the homeless, but they don't actually stab them to death. Yeah. The first music scene is the Hugh Lewis and the news <laughs> right. scene. Which is amazing. And that's Jared Leto. So, it's still... so he seems to be moved at Jared Leto slash Paul Allen because he is sort of the cream of the crop. He's the best business card. He keeps getting Patrick Bateman's name wrong. He thinks it's Marcus Halberstam or whatever his name is. Yeah, there's also this this uh, overarching thing about the Fisher account. Who has the Fisher account? Right, and yeah. everyone's jealous of that. And so, yes. Yeah, so and he it's lures. ridiculous because they all just kind of look alike. They're all the same person. Paul Allen has like a slightly different... Uh, he's basically 10% better in life at everything that Patrick Bateman does. Right. But, you know, the idea is that Patrick Bateman just did another year. Maybe you know, he'd be there too. And this is that scene where Jared Leto, again, is a four-year-old acting drunk. It's very strange. Or it's brilliant. I can't decide. Um, but then you have the absolute iconic scene of Patrick Bateman, you know, putting on his raincoat. Yes. <laughs> uh, putting on Huey Lewis and doing his monologue about Huey Lewis and the news' um, sports Also a little dancing, a little shuffling yeah. around. It's so good. So he, uh, but in the midst of that, he... Uh, Hilariously takes a very large axe from a very scale. shiny. Yeah, whack him and there's blood and whack something. Yeah, blood. Well, and that's not so. Whenever he so then he puts Paul Allen's body and he drags it through the hallway with like blood yeah. smearing behind it. Rock, so right past the door, man. Yeah, yeah, all of it just again seems fanciful. With maybe if you think about it in the scheme of well, he's a really rich white guy, so someone's going to come and mop it up and not say anything. But I think in this, it seems like it's more, it's it's in his head. Yeah, but that's, that does seem to be the other conceit, that it's not initially see, these people see the blood or something, but they just allow these people to right, do what, exactly. whatever. They're just not going to, they're not, you know, uh, you know, see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil type of thing, because they're just so very rich and uh, successful and white and yes. male, and that's just fine. So it could very well be all happening, and that's just the other layer of, you know, sort of satire, I suppose. Um, but it seems to be all come down to the fact that all these people look alike, and somehow Paul Allen is just seen elsewhere by the people after he's supposedly dead. Right. Or he's not. They're seeing someone else. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to the um, the first scene with William Defoe, my favorite line that is uh, when, um, again, William Defoe is asking him, you know, what did you do on some certain night? And Patrick Bateman says, uh, we went to a musical called um, Oh, Africa, Brave Africa. It was a life ride, <laughs> laugh ride. <laughs> 
my god. So clearly he's making it up right. badly, but again, like he can drag a body through the hallway. Right. He can lie like, you know, Donald Trump and like it just gets lost in the shuffle. He was just that rich, I guess. Right. Then we have uh, the first threesome date. Okay. Right? And this is where it gets interesting. I mean, not that it's not already interesting, but so, um, and I call it, this is the Phil Collins scene. So we have Patrick picking up Christy, mm-hmm. who is a sort of traditional kind of street hooker. I mean, I, I guess you can't really be politically correct about hookers, right? I mean, sex worker. Sex worker on the street. Yes. Yeah. So you see Candy politically correct. Yes. <laughs> She's a sex worker. But, um, but he also calls and orders a, a high-end escort. Right. That's what, that's what I'm getting at. She's a sex worker, too, but she's not on the street. Yes. So there's a hierarchy amongst his people. Yes. That I guess Petra would recognize. Mm-hmm. So, and he does this twice. He does this on this first scene with um, where he just sort of, well, he obviously hurts them. Right. And it's, to me, it's very disturbing and sick. Well, yeah. Um, well, it's, at first, they have a great time. They all seem to be, they all enjoy it, and then they all fall asleep. And yeah. then they wake up and they try to leave, and and that's when it becomes violent. He says, "We're not done yet," and it's it's he's has a a wire hanger. Yeah. So, but I'm wondering, like, um, he seems to enjoy sort of mixing. This is to me like the ultimate misogyny of this character. Like, he's mixing this idea of like this to him this street worker. I'm just gonna use that term because it's probably what he would use with this sort of high end call girl. The high-end car girl, which he wants a specific type and wants to be blonde, mm-hmm. he probably wants that because it's the type of girl he's used to dating, or maybe at least looks like him. Right. And he wants to sort of put her and kind of on the same level in his mind as this sort of base street worker. Yeah. Like, you know, get them on the same level, and maybe that's where the sort of, to the extent there is a psychology to him, that's sort of the ultimate misogyny. He's just trying to really degrade like the act is almost against the sex worker that's the escort right and like like this is who you really are yeah and sleeping with both of them and then hurting both of them and then later when he repeats it he takes to the next step of actually getting one of his friends involved right so we went from the high escort to me that just reminds him of the type of women he's used to yes and then just saying fuck it and just invites one of his friends and then of course kills them both yes so I think that just shows how his hatred for women is really rooted with the women he's around and those are the people he probably most wants to humiliate right which is terrifying it is um but suddenly um you know when you have the second threesome scene it just turns into straight like last girl standing friday the 13th type movie where, right you know after that horrifying scene of him you know emerging from the bed with her and his mouth's bloody which, which we won't talk into what he was actually but, doing I mean come on because I I read it and it's seared into my brain oh is it okay yes steadily more and more into this sort of fantasy world um, where you know again this scene at the end it, it, like it's like a traditional horror movie he's chasing right with Christy the, through the hallway though. I love how he puts his shoes on yeah that's cute um, <laughs> but with the chainsaw and then before, I mean, of course, before that, you have all the, like the bodies dropping out of closets, right. and, like yes. like ten bodies, yes. and that's straight out of Friday the Thirteenth. Yes, like, uh, it's the scene where the last girl standing discovers all the previous girls he's killed. It's literally that scene. Yes, which is they're hanging in the closet. Yeah, uh, which and I don't know if that's out. Doesn't sound like this in the book, maybe, but Mm-mm. it's pure horror film fantasy. And this is a guy that does sit ups watching horror movies, and so you, it. it, it very much seems you know, like okay this is pure fantasy and and that aside from the fact that you can't 
chase someone through a crowded apartment building with a chainsaw and not be caught. I mean, right. I know it's not that kind of movie, but you have to have some sort of, you know... Uh, and she's banging on doors, right. and then the chainsaw is already loud, and then she happens to get hit with it. I mean, yeah, it's all... It makes it much more fanciful. Yeah. So then there's like, okay, so there's two things. He didn't kill them at all, or maybe he killed them, but it wasn't like that. He just, he just sort of elevated into his mind to where it's like this, you know, like, like last scene of a horror movie type thing. Or it's completely just in his head and they don't and who knows but I mean I think at the end when they have Chloe Sevigny going through his book and he sees all she's all the drawings yeah I think it makes it seem like it's more like it's still a fantasy yeah but you could say that two ways maybe he's drawing what's happened you know like he's that's how he likes to remember them I mean it's a thing you know like on 900 the guy draws oh uh, the, yeah the BTK killer yeah. draws his uh, yeah so that's how you used to take it oh that she's discovered like evidence but I, like, I mean, I guess it also also says, even if he's killing, he's killing Paul Allen, he's killing his friend in this world, that even in this, even in his high end world, everyone is so involved with each other yeah. that if he murders one of them, no one will notice. But okay. yes, and so also he can take the sex workers from the street and no one's going to miss them either. Because like I talked about before, that book, The Lost Girls, which is about a bunch of um, sex workers who had gone missing in New Jersey and no one noticed I mean no one the police would not take it seriously because they were sex workers their families were advocating for them but they were like well sorry they chose this life so maybe it is that he actually was doing these God, I mean I know it's supposed to be ambiguous but I I, more as I this last rewatch in particular I just feel certain it's on his head but yeah because I think they make a make it more of a point when he talks to his lawyer that he just had dinner with Paul Allen in London. I think you're supposed mm-hmm. to take it more as like that did actually happen as opposed to thinking into it. It's like but the guy doesn't even realize he's talking to the right person. Yeah. So yeah. how yeah. can you take that? Yeah, yeah I know. I know. <laughs> you're not supposed to know. It's, it's pointless to really, I guess, um, land on any one thing. But I guess we'll get to the end. We have the this what I would call this pure fantasy scene. Yes. The First, he of, tries to feed a cat. Right. Okay. To the so ATM. let's lay the groundwork. The, the main fantasy part is that he found a kitten, and the kitten let him pick him up in Manhattan. Yes. Yeah. I mean, maybe a kitten's from around Manhattan, but um, <laughs> I was just pointing out this was filmed in Toronto because I was trying to look for lights. Yeah, but anyway. Oh. Um, it is funny that even I never really picked on this, but he works in one of two identical office buildings. Oh, interesting. And so he. That's like when he goes in one of them, the the security guard, he goes like, hey, Mr. Smith. And, uh, you know, again, doesn't even recognize yeah, him. Even He's the, just in the wrong building. And some right. other guy that probably looks like him works in that building. Right. He shoots him for that reason, apparently. But then he just goes back out and he goes to the, right. the, the right building, which is where he actually worked. But they're identical. Yes. So that's kind of a funny idea. I mean, I guess maybe back then the Twin Towers would have kind of been the, the analog. But it is kind of a funny conceit that not only are these these males you know, routinely not recognizing each other. Nobody does. But just the yeah. whole world that they live in is <laughs> yeah. like set up to where like everybody, everything, everybody is like interchangeable. Um, it's like a radio hit song. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, so you have this, uh, this prolonged fantasy scene where he's, he starts out going to an ATM and the ATM. And he pulls a gun out <laughs> to shoot the kitten. Well, the ATM asks him to feed him <laughs> a straight cut, which is straight out of an X-Files episode. If you remember. Yes. <laughs> 
Um, so first he tries to feed the cat to the ATM, which is really funny. He tries to put it in the slot. <laughs> and then he pulls a gun out of who knows where. And again, and, fantasy. I mean, it, it is a comical scene in the movie. Like, this isn't, if this was in the book... I bet it would have been described differently. Well, isn't there and something dark like and that heavier? in the book or some? Yeah, uh, he says that that um, the ATM starts talking to him. <laughs> he also references having kittens and puppies at home that he wants to get home and torture. You know, and all of it. <laughs> I know it's awful, <laughs> but there's nothing like this, especially when you see it, especially after the performance. This is making the book sound very funny to me. I don't know. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> There's cop cars. He blows the cop car up. Yeah. This is when he runs into the wrong building. Yeah, but even the cop car explosion, I feel like that happens because that's what he would have seen in the movie. This time, I right. guess, an action movie. Right. Although even he does seem kind of surprised by it. But. In the book, he shoots a saxophonist first. The police officer sees him. He somehow gets in the police car. He drives the police car. He crashes it into a deli or something. It, it's, it's similar. And then it's the same. It climaxes with the same... Cheery phone call. Yes. The same crazy phone call he makes to his lawyer, admitting everything. So, yes, that's definitely the either the high point or the low point of the, the movie, depending on how you... I mean, he's hit rock bottom, I guess. Uh, but then you have this sort of, you know, not epilogue, but this these closing chapters where, like, oh, maybe it didn't all happen, as if he hadn't really kind of included in that yet. Right. Um, so you have this scene where he goes to Paul Allen's apartment where he's been routinely going. That's where he had the second threesome, for instance. And yes. um, Christy made that comment about, oh, the apartment looks nice or whatever. And he got mad. Yes. Um, but this time he goes there and it's been completely painted, you know, some white now, kind of like Patrick's actually, now I think about it. Um, and then um, specifically the closet where the 10 dead girls were hanging. <laughs> right. Well, so he puts on his mask thinking yeah. he's going to be going into this right. stench. Yeah. Well, yeah. So like maybe even if, Patrick Bateman wanted to admit it. Nobody wants to hear it because they don't want this to be part of their their world. Yeah, and there's this great line that never, or two lines, I never picked up before, which seems to be almost like the the button of the movie that the filmmakers are commenting on, but where the lawyer says, you know, after Patrick's ranting, the lawyer finally says, I don't find this funny anymore. And Patrick says, it's not supposed to be. Hmm. <laughs> which is like, you know, whoa. And that's like the last five minutes of the movie so you know what's that about you know i don't find this funny anymore like all this what we've been watching the last two hours oh it's not supposed to be okay right right so it's not a satire <laughs> you know what's what's happening here? <laughs> um i love that i think i got very excited when that happened um but that's kind of the end you you, you know you have that scene your love with ambiguity patrick sticks back down with his friends they make some commentary about ronald reagan being psychopath as, right. as you as you do right um and that's they all uh, seem bored again just with their lives the, I, thought, I like the one line where the guy says do we have reservations anywhere i'm not even hungry i just want reservations right they're kind of just sailing back to their teens and patrick's kind of back among them and you know invisible again and that's kind of that the, the last line of the book is a sign Somewhere in that yes. room. Um, this is not an exit or yes. this is an exit or whatever it is. This yeah. is not an exit. Yeah, I'm not sure what that means. but <laughs> Some of Bruce Wayne's, even his line readings are similar to Patrick Bateman's. If you really, I bet we should watch The Dark Knight and really just get into I would it. Like, I would watch The Dark Knight anytime, Chris. What time? Is it too late to go watch it? I think the, again, I was kind of worried about rewatching it, but I think it's a, I think it actually gets better as I um, rewatch it. 
especially the more removed I get from the source material. Yes. And it can stand on its own and knowing that all the, you know, that has its own sort of, the filmmakers clearly have their own take on it. Christian Bale is so fantastic. Um, there's not really a bad performance except for Jared Leto, who's a child. Um, and even that, again, we may he may be brilliant, and we just don't recognize it. I don't know. Yeah, I was um, really surprised. I thought that rewatching it, Christian Bale's um, performance was going to be cheesy or over the top. Not at all. It's so good. It's still so wonderful, yeah. so nuanced, even though it's... Yeah, he's, it's not even really over the top. I mean, he, no, it's I, not. It has his moments, for sure, like the, the, the phone call and the... <laughs> The screaming into the phone call to, um, uh, you know, why do you got to be so sad, Gene? <laughs> um, but sure, but even that, it's like he's a he's a psychopath, and mm-hmm. he could he could have gone way to the extreme if he wanted to, and I'm, I'm sure he was tempted. <laughs> um, all the cocaine, right? Lots of cocaine, and not even that halcyon. Um, I don't even know what halcyon is. I don't know. It sounds terrible. Lithium. I mean. The book, I'm much more hesitant to recommend to anybody. I'd say just watch the movie and enjoy that. If you want to see where the source came from, that's fine. It's going to haunt you for the rest of your life. And I am, like you were saying, I'm, I'm ready to kind of, in a few years, maybe be, be detached from the book and be able to watch the movie again separately. Yeah. Well, funnily enough, I'm now completely on board with rereading the book. Because okay. I'm just well, curious. I'm going to leave it for you. Are you? Okay, good. Okay, Chris, it's time to put down the book. You can't read it yet. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so I'm a little afraid to ask, but I I assume you have a true crime for this one. I do. (laughs) Please tell me all about it. (laughs) So there's a few true crimes that disturb me too much. Right. Uh, One of them is the Snowtown murders that happened in Australia. One of them is the Toy Box Killer. And one of them is this one. The Toy Box Killer? Yeah. That sounds really intriguing. (laughs) pretty awful okay um but i figured we're already like down this path so we might as well just go ahead and do this all with this episode okay okay and this is going to be like if you want to know like the the real details like what brett easton ellis would have written about this true crime then you can look it up yourself I'm not going to do all the details okay, good. the way he would write it. So it's kind of like if you want to know what actually happens to that homeless man in the movie American Psycho, in the book, you can go read it. We're not going to tell you or read you the passage or that. So it's kind of like that. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So it's still going to be very disturbing. Right. But you're not going to do the full Brady's and Ellis treatments. Because there's so much that it goes into it. It's, it's, it's absolutely insane. Okay. Well, am I to at least assume that... Do you think Bernice and Ellis would have heard about these murders, or are these just murders that are similar to... This is a murder that happened in 2012. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so first of all, let me back up a little bit. The first time I heard about this murder was, I'm a little embarrassed to say, was on a podcast called Sword and Scale. And I actually referenced it in our Hereditary episode. If you remember, it was the the murder about this sleepwalking killer. I do remember, yeah. And so since then, like a lot of bad things have come out about... I read your Twitter feed okay. on that. I, was, I, I didn't quite get it, but I, well, I'm curious so, what the controversy was. Well, I always thought Sword and Scale was a bit too um, exploitive. They played too much like audio they probably shouldn't have. They He went way too much into detail about things that I think 
he was just doing it to be salacious. And so there's some episodes I skipped, you know, but I still listened to it, even though I felt a little guilty. Then things started coming about coming out about the actual um, narrator, Mark Boudet. Is he, he the podcast host? Yes. The, okay. And so he started, he would send weird things to young girls. He he got on the My Favorite Murder Facebook page and like trolled people. He's just, he's kind of a douche. And then there was an episode where he played the entire 911 call of this boy. He was like 14 and then he, his dad was killing his mom and he played the entire thing. And then the actual, now he's a man, I guess he called Mike out and was like, you, you that's, you know, that's, that, is offensive to me. I wish you would take that down. And he like made some snark comment to him. Wow. So all this stuff started happening. And then um, I forget what finally caused it to implode, but like he got kicked off of Patreon. So he tried to start his own Patreon. And then for a little while, he was on either Tenderfoot TV or iHeartRadio, which are two big podcasting companies. And then they kicked him off for inappropriate things that he said and. So I just, I felt bad for ever listening to the podcast. But the first podcast, I mean, the first time I heard about this case, who I'm going to be talking about, Luca Magnata, just so if anyone else knows, it, it was a very disturbing episode that he did. I wouldn't recommend going back and listening to it. But the, some of this is sourced from Sword and Skill. But what's stuck in my mind? Like from the stuff that I read in American Psycho that is stuck there. I can't yeah. help it. Some of it might still be in there, but um, well, it's actually quite appropriate then. You know, problematic yeah. texts that we're yes. kind of <gasps> yes. looking at. Yes. Okay. Sword and Scale is done. Oh, it's over. Yeah. Cancelled. Um. Well, it, the network dropped it, and then I think he got so mad at everybody that he just said fine and he quit. I don't know what he's doing. Interesting. Probably um, in five years. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so, and to kind of refresh myself, I went back and listened to another podcast. It's called True Crime Garage. It's two male hosts, but they're much more respectful um, of people and and especially the victims and disturbing cases like this. So I went back and listened to, they have a two-part episode that um, I would recommend. So yeah, Well, I've, I mean, you've mentioned the name already, but I've not, I can tell you I've never heard this murder. So. Okay. So we're going to start in 2012 in Canada, believe it or not. They're so friendly up there. Yeah, you'd think. Uh, Jun Lin was a 33-year-old Chinese exchange student living in Canada. He was going to school for computer science. His family described him as an outgoing, bright guy, very family-oriented person. And unfortunately, he started hanging out with um, 29-year-old Luca Magnata. Then one day in May of 2012... June disappeared. So we'll go back and we'll talk about Luca. Uh, so Luca Rocco Magnata was born. What a name. Well, he made that up. Yeah. His real name was Eric Clinton Kirk Newman, which is still, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Which is still quite a mouthful. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I mean, was he ashamed of his like, presumed whiteness or I mean, what? What's going on there? I don't know. Well, yes, he was because he also he would lie about saying that he was Italian and Russian and um, he so, changed his name. It was like it was Vladimir at one point. He changed it and then he ended so up. Say his real name again, Eric. Eric Clinton Kirk Newman. So Eric Clinton, Bill Clinton, Kirk, Captain Kirk Newman, Paul Newman. That's like the widest possible <laughs> it is name. name. <laughs> Eric Clapton. <laughs> he was born in 1982 in Ontario, Canada. Okay. 
So after graduating high school, he started stripping and working as a male escort. Cool. Um, even working in some porno films. He's a cute guy. He likes to stay in shape, getting into Patrick Bateman territory. He was obsessed with his looks and his body. He tried out for multiple TV shows, one called Cover Guy and one called Plastic Makes Perfect. I guess those are Canadian shows anyway, so we wouldn't know if they went to air, but he bragged about the plastic surgery he had. He constantly took selfies just all the time. He would Photoshop himself. So that's very much Patrick Bateman, only without the success and the money. It's amazing to think what Patrick Bateman would be like in our you know, current times with Twitter and Instagram. And oh my gosh. That'd be terrifying. <laughs> I would love to do, I would love for them to do an updated one. You know, I mean, I know everything's being remade and updated. Yeah. Well, I say that it probably is like a parody Patrick Bateman Twitter account or, par- or Instagram That's true. account. But, but, but a new movie though, whether it's... Yeah, I mean, it's been almost 20 years. Yeah, based in in nowadays. In our Once Upon a Time in Hollywood episode, you know, we talked about the Manson murders. Yeah. I remember this article that so, that came out that someone um, made up if Twitter had existed back then. Oh, that's great. It was fascinating. So they were like, um, so-and-so tweeted, I heard a gunshot at this time, you know, and um, kind of going through social media and how it would have it would have reacted. It was very, very brilliant. All right, so this is where it, he starts to get evil. So he befriends a 21-year-old mentally handicapped woman. She essentially has the mind of a 12-year-old. Uh, she gets He gets her to open credit cards for him and stole over $10,000 from her. He gets arrested with fraud. There's also some allegedly he sexually assaulted her and filmed it, but for some reason that was dropped before he went to trial. So he was charged with fraud, given 12-month probation, and told that he had to take medication for schizophrenia. And so then he was released. Update, there is a Patrick Bateman Twitter account. There's actually several, but they're not very interesting. They only have one follower. They're not doing a parody. They just apparently really like Patrick Bateman. No, that's what we're supposed to do. We need someone smart to do that. I didn't look very hard, but that's what showed up pretty quickly. So Luca gets out, or Knight doesn't get out. He's just on probation. He's still out there. He, start, he makes several, like over 50 to 100 fake online profiles. Can you imagine keeping up with all that? I have three Instagrams, and it's, it's hell. exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> I did a, a sometimes did a Twitter update earlier today and almost passed out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I done like three posts over the last few days, and it's been like harrowing. Right. Another crazy thing he does is he starts his own rumor that he's dating Carla Hamolka. So I have to give you a little background on who that is. So Carla was part of the Ken and Barbie murders. We've never talked about this on the podcast, but so Carla was married to a guy named Paul Bernardo and she helped him abduct and murder three women, one of them being her own sister. And they're called the Ken and Barbie murders because they were very attractive. But so she he was sentenced to life and she was sentenced to a year or something crazy like um so she was out and so he started a rumor that they were dating and he would like photoshop them together and put this all out and obviously he's not coming from like luca magnata on facebook he has all these fake accounts oh. so it doesn't look like it's coming from him you know and then but he's he, saying that luca magnata yes is, or, okay. oh this is that talk about some some hubris 
He keeps trying to make a Wikipedia page about himself. He does it like three times, and Wikipedia keeps taking it down. I wonder why they would do that. I've always wondered how that works. I mean, can you just Wikipedia anything? Because he doesn't have enough. He's just a person. There's nothing that he's done that would... Um, oh, so right now, can I make a Wikipedia of myself? You have to have, what, a certain amount of notoriety? I've been, I'm honestly curious about this. I'm curious about that, too. But yes, I do think there has to be some sort of need for it. So we'll also get in touch with Luca and see what he says. <laughs> so in 2010, he posts a video on his Facebook page called Three Guys, One Hammer. So he wasn't involved in this video. This might be a story we'll do another time for another movie but it was uh these ukrainian serial killers they did a string of murders in 2007 one of they videotaped them and one of which ended up going viral and it was them beating a man to death with hammers and so he posted this on his facebook page and this is where it starts this is just like uh starts escalating so hang on so then in 2010, Luca starts hyping a new video that he's going to post called One Guy, Two Kittens. Oh, Jesus. Okay. So he's, again, this hasn't come out yet. He's just on all of his social medias posting, like, I can't wait for this video to come out. And then it comes out. And it is um, a masked man um, putting two kittens into a bag and suffocating them. So this comes out and... Trigger warning. <laughs> if you like kittens. Should have done that first, huh? No. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> yeah, it's... You can put it on the little, uh, you know, summary. It's pretty awful. But so, because this video becomes seen, it actually gets so the attention of this guy named Ryan Boyle, who starts um, a Facebook group to find this guy. Uh, he gets over 4,000 followers, and then a bunch of other animal rights groups join in to find this guy. Um, subsequently, he releases a video of a cat being drowned and a kitten being eaten by a python. What? Yes. Where did he get a python from? I don't know. Oh, he just found a video of it? No, it was him. Jesus Christ. Um, but they don't know who he is yet. So this, the, all these groups are trying to investigate him. He knows that they're on to him. So I think at one point he checks in with his lawyer, like, have you heard anything? Um about me he's constantly googling himself he can't help it you know um and it's also hard to find him because he's already legally changed his name to luca magnata Uh, his his first crime that he committed was under the name eric and then he had another alias and then he has all these fake profiles so it's it's hard to pin him down right did he change his name for that very reason to get away from these i'm not sure when he did it but it didn't make things easier to find him. And he, then he can't even help not being involved. So he actually goes onto these Facebook pages and posts pictures of himself. Like he just, he, I don't know if he wants to, he just wants the notoriety, but he doesn't want to get caught exactly, but he can't help it. And so they are starting to get some of these pictures together and they can, they found a picture of him with a couple of kittens. They find photos of him in his, Apartment, and they kind of match the furniture and stuff, you know, to the one that's in the kitten videos. So they're trying to like, they're starting to narrow down who it is. Um, at one point, he actually goes into the Sun newspaper office in London and says that he's the kitten killer. Um, like, like in seven, he walks in. Yes, he walks in. <laughs> I'm the man you're looking for. Fur all over him. <laughs> <laughs> um, he also sends them emails saying like, "I, it's me, it's Luca Magnata," but because he's in London, so the police can't really do anything. There was some sort of jurisdiction thing going on. 
The Canadian police are still... Is that what you call them? I don't know if they're Canadian police, but... The Mounties? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. They're still trying to track Luca down. They somehow figure out he's probably in Montreal based on his photos he's been posting. But again, he posts pictures of himself in multiple places, some of which he's not even there. He photoshops himself in different pictures, so no one they don't know exactly where he is. Then uh, things get worse. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm just getting okay. scared. <laughs> right. So then in May 2012, he again starts posting about a new video, and it's called One Lunatic, One Ice Pick. He starts hyping this up around all of his other accounts. Then on May 24th, uh, June Lin doesn't show up to work, and so people know he's missing. The next day, on May 25th, which is Brian's birthday, what were, what were we doing? 2012. Who's this? This video came out. The one lunatic, one ice pick video appears online. So it shows a man tied up to the bed, alive. Then the video cuts out, and when it comes back, the man is dead. Then oh, this it, is real? Yes. Then it shows another man stab the man with an ice pick and dismember him. So this starts going... Then there's a, so much more to it that happens in the video. And again, I watched, listening to that Sword and Scale, they didn't, they, they, he went, I think he went into detail more about what exactly what all he did. But I'm, I'm getting nauseous right now, thinking about it. Like it bothered me that much. Um, so you, at some point in 2012, you can go online and just watch that. Yes. And so was it removed or something? It was removed very quickly, but it's, you can still find it, I'm sure, in the dark recesses of the, of the web if you want. Where would he post such a thing? Just on YouTube or I don't know how you... Yeah, I think he did. Crazy. Yeah. And so that's why... So And there are all these reaction videos of people watching it. And so on the Sword and Scale episode, they play the audio of people watching the video and kind of narrating it. And it was really upsetting because a lot of these people watching it were like teenagers. You know, so they didn't realize what the ramifications were going to be for watching something like that. And I'm sure it messed them up. So kind of like a faces of death type thing. Yeah, yeah but it, it turns out it was real. I don't want anyone else to be nauseous. So I'm saying don't listen to that sword and scale. And of course, when I say don't do that, you're going to go do it. I know you are because I would do the same thing. Or being ethical. Or, you know. I know. But it's it's right out of... It reminds me of like an episode in like Millennium or something. Like, you know, remember like the oh, yeah. sort of Zodiac type episode where the guy, and you know, this is like the early days of the internet, but he was like, had a countdown on the web and it's like in 24 hours this person will die. And it was, remember it was like the early internet images where it wasn't quite real video, but like it would update every five seconds. And then... Well, then there's a little more that's similar to some stuff on Millennium mm-hmm. coming up. So, so people are on the hunt. For the people in this video, they still don't know who the victim is. They still don't know who the they they have an idea that it's probably Luca Magnata because he's already been linked to these kitten killings. So I mean, do they at least know the same person doing that is the same person killing the kitten? So, I think they have, I think they have a pretty good idea. Then on May 29th, a conservative party headquarters receives a package, and uh, inside is a human foot, and a human hand is also found. And a torso is found in a suitcase in Montreal. So at this point, Luca has set up set off to Europe. Now they're but now they're on to him. Video of him and they figure out that Lynn is the one who's missing, or June Lynn is the one that's missing. And there's 
surveillance video of them together going into his apartment. And I watched that, which I don't recommend that either, because it's very sad. So him and Jun Lin go in to their apartment, and then later you see Luca come back out alone. And the creepiest thing is he's wearing the shirt that Jun Lin was wearing when they both walked in. And then they show a lot of him going to the garbage cans, and he's throwing away things. Well, I mean, not to skip ahead, but I mean, why did he do that other than him being like just a psychopath but like was there a reason he decided to kill that guy or no he was essentially like patrick bateman he was schizophrenic a borderline personality disorder um apparently his father suffered from the same thing but so finally on june 4th he's found in berlin in an internet cafe because he's googling pictures of himself and he's googling articles about himself so somehow they're able to track it it's all very um, high tech. Yeah. In True Crime Garage, they just they describe it pretty well. I mean, they were able to track the something on the something, and then they can see that he's looking up himself, and so they're able to find him. And they're also using surveillance, and so someone saw him there, and so they're able to get him. So he's arrested and extradited back to Canada. In the meantime, on June fifth, two packages come to two Vancouver elementary schools. One contains a human foot, and one contains a human hand. Jeez. Uh, so on July 4th, about a month later, they find Jun Lin's head in a Montreal park. By July 12th, they are able to confirm that all the body parts were from um, Jun Lin. So wait, what do you mean? He just left his head in a park? Like, yes. Not like in a garbage bag or something, or just like staged? or? I don't know. Oh, and also in that video, the surveillance video, there after he he's already murdered him. He's come back out wearing Jun Lin's shirt, and he walks by a mirror and stops and like checks his hair and then like looks like checks his body out. I mean, is that not from American Psycho? That is. Ugh. So he was like I said, he was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, paranoid schizophrenia. The court believed he was insane, or I guess there they call it the crown. But it still seems like he understood right from wrong. You know, like he tried to dispose of the body. They think he understood what he was doing. He pled not guilty. He was charged with uh, first degree murder, committing an indignity to a human body, posting obscene material, mailing obscene material. Oh, and this is interesting too. Criminally harassing Stephen Harper and other members of parliament because he mailed li- he mailed letters with the packages that called out like the prime minister and his wife and stuff like that. You can't do that either. You know, like, talk to them. They'll know what this is about and things like that. Now, one of the worst things about this story is, besides the loss of um, Jun Lin, that Luca did gain a following because of this. He's in prison now, and he has fans on Facebook, and he gets letters mailed to him. Is he actually good-looking? Like, is that kind of part of it? Like, I mean, he's not unattractive, but um, he just looks... Even in the pictures, we'll post some pictures on our Instagram. He looks very pompous. And just like he, he's pouting his lips. And one of the um, good things that did come out of this is the Concordia University where Jin Lin was attending started a scholarship in his name that goes towards Chinese students who wish to study there. Another shitty thing is apparently there's a matchmaking site in Canada for uh, inmates. And apparently he's engaged. Doesn't I, seem like a convicted murder should be allowed yeah, that. But I think he looks hideous. I mean, he's not... 
I'm just being mean. I mean, okay. he's a circular. <laughs> but no, he's, I mean, he's not like a... But he thought he was, you know, and... He's definitely pouting. Well, this is his mugshot, too. He's wearing a tank top. <laughs> so sad. But yeah, there's so many photos of him. But Jun Lin just looked so sweet. I mean, were they together? I mean, was he gay or like... Luca was bi, and then I think Jun Lin was gay, but he wasn't out to his family, I don't think. Um, so they think they could have been dating... Or they could have just been friends. I'm not sure. Oh, I forgot he was a porn actor. Yeah, so... Okay, well, I mean, he's... No, he's a twink. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's one of the worst stories when you know all the details about it. Even if you don't... You don't have to know everything that he did, and it's still so fucked up. In Millennium, you know, he leaves the heart in the refrigerator. Also, in American Psycho, there's a reference to him mailing body parts to people. Yeah, when I look at him, I'm, you know, I'm looking at on the website it's not what I imagine he seems like he's a kid I don't he looks like a kid yeah. he, I think he was 29 and but he didn't look he looks so much younger and so that's uh, Luca Magnata now you can scrub that from your memory and don't look up anymore stop everybody stop googling it I know they're all looking <laughs> literally it literally googling it as you do the <laughs> podcast but. I'm sorry I apologize it's interesting I mean it's uh, I wonder like do you think that was way more notorious in Canada because I've never heard of that and I've heard of mo- some of the things you've said and that seems like something I would have at least... I'm sure it was, because I don't know how many serial killers there are in Canada, but it does, you know, when you think of Canada, you do think of sweet, kind Walker people and, and, yeah. and maple syrup and Justin Trudeau, so I don't know. Right. All right, so I guess that's so, it. Canadian so, psycho. And fuck toxic masculinity. Right. Any other thoughts we had on American Psycho or anything like that? No, I, but, I thought it was interesting how you mentioned the Joker movie. Yes, uh, we were before we... Uh, we're potting this whatever the <laughs> phrase is uh the joker movie which uh today just won the some some sort of major award at some venice film festival and uh this is the joker movie starring joaquin phoenix i've not seen it no one's seen it except for i guess critics but apparently it's, it's just a, a hotbed of controversy because it, it is an american psycho type movie not in the sense that it's about um you know serial killings i mean maybe it is but but it kind of comes from a certain similar mindset, which is, uh, you know, a white male rage, uh, grievance-based film, sort of taking out his anger on the world, and and in a real world we have, you know, mass shootings every other week, right. performed mostly by white males. People are kind of suddenly raising their eyebrows at this type of movie coming out now, even if it's obviously a comic movie. Right. But apparently, this movie is takes pains to remove itself from the sort of comic booky type. Supposedly it's like taxi, taxi driver, but the oh, joke, okay. like that's the idea. Hmm. And people are kind of thinking like, maybe not. <laughs> right. <laughs> because literally that is actually happening as we speak. It's right. very interesting, you know, like, but for the time we're in, this movie may be a classic. All right. And maybe it's a classic. Well, we'll see. I mean, I mean, it, it did win a major film award. Um, but so we'll wait six weeks. It'll come out. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll watch it. I do want to see it. I mean, I'm curious about it. I love the trailer. Yeah. But the, I will say that all the, the criticism and Twitter controversy about it has already slightly soured me on it. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Thank you. American Psycho. Bye. Good night. Good night.